Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I have on the show today uh, Jane Wheeler. Jane Wheeler is the uh, founder and president of Rethink Identity Medical Ethics. If you go to rethinkime.org, you can check out the work that she is involved in. Um, and it's just, it's a fantastic, um, organization that she has started. And the main thing that it addresses is some of the ethical questions surrounding medical interventions with, uh, teenagers who, um, uh, are gender nonconforming or identify as transgender or non-binary. It's a huge conversation happening in a in certain spheres of the medical field, and Jane um, is navigating that extremely well. I think um, she's very sharp, very wise. She has a uh, well. I talk about her credentials in the podcast, but um, yeah, she she got her JD from UCLA uh, Law School. Super smart, super awesome. Um, and actually, the the topic that we're going to discuss. Um, I get into a lot of the same stuff we talk about here in my forthcoming book, Embodied Transgender Identities, uh, the church and what the Bible has to say. Now, Jane is not, she doesn't confess. Um, uh, she's not a religious person, doesn't, doesn't have like a, a Christian faith commitment. Um, in fact, she's a lesbian with two teenage sons and, and, um, so uh, she's coming at this strictly from kind of a scientific point of view. Now, my book, I, I do come at it from a Christian point of view, but I do deal a lot with a lot of the scientific uh, research, the data, and actually a lot of the stuff we talk about in this podcast, I do have a couple chapters that that does get into some of the uh, questions surrounding medical interventions with uh, trans-identified teenagers. So this is very, this is very relevant to um, uh, my forthcoming book, which you can check out where books are sold. Play Amazon, maybe Barnes and Noble if there's if that's still around. It's available for pre-order. Again, the book is embodied. You can check it out at Amazon. It comes out February first. So let's dive into our topic with the one and only Jane Wheeler. Okay. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I am here with Jane Wheeler. Uh, Jane is the president of uh, Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics. Uh, She has a Juris Doctorate from UCLA um, Law School, a BA from University of Arizona in Anthropology, and has served, uh, has been a board member um, uh, for human rights uh, and serve, wait, I'm getting a board board member of Lawyers for Human Rights, uh, now the Los Angeles LGBT Bar Association, and has served on GLAD's LA Women's Committee. Um, Jane, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I've been looking forward to this for a really long time. We've been kind of emailing back and forth for a while, and I've I've benefited from your work so much. So I've got a bunch of questions uh, for you to unpack for us. But thanks so much for being on. No problem. Glad to be here. So uh, talk to me about Rethink. Uh, identity medicine ethics and and w- what is it what led you to start this and what are what's some of the work that you guys are doing through this organization well we we put it together about a year and a half ago and we just began to really um, delve into certain initiatives and I'll describe them in a minute but uh, it was put together by myself uh, Lisa Marciano and Jenny Cyphers and we came together after uh, contacting one another through social media. We're all over the country uh, from different, with different 
emphasis and different backgrounds um, with interacting with this area, identity medicine. And uh, we began to talk about how we would like to an organization that is an educational and research organization that promotes uh, ethical identity medicine for children and youth. And it would at that time when we were looking into it, there was really nothing happening um, other than blogs on the subject. Fourth Wave now being the pr most prominent one, and in, in the UK there are also um, blogs. And uh, and now we are a part of a, a, a growing group of people that are interested in pursuing research and also helping people to be more educated about what's going on in the and yeah. how to improve the care that's being provided. Um, my background is, as you can tell, I am, have been a lawyer. Mm -hmm. uh, I was a healthcare regulatory um, attorney practicing in Los Angeles, primarily in the 90s during the AIDS crisis, and was very much involved with licensure of clinics, AIDS clinics, and also informed consent and other issues. So when I became aware of uh, what was going on with the medicalization of, tr of um, gender medicine, uh, and it was moving towards increasingly younger medicalization, also what was happening with the demographics around children and youth who were seeking to transition, I became very much interested in how this had developed and whether and and the degree to which there was regulatory oversight and what kind of care was actually being provided to this population. And we just, you know, it has taken a while for us to pull it all together, yeah. but we just finished our online survey, which was a needs assessment. Mm -hmm. it, it's still in the analytics um, aspect of it, but the, we, we had an open online survey for detransitioners and desisters, anyone who transitioned and stopped okay. for whatever reason uh, was part of, was invited to be partake in this survey as a needs assessment. What care do you feel that you need now and perhaps did not get earlier? Mm -hmm. And so these are sort of two prongs. Um, but it is to approach how to provide better care mm -hmm. to this population regardless of whether they actually transition or don't transition or detransition and um, and that and we're, we're doing the analytics and data gathering is being done by the Northern Colorado University sociology department okay so we're working we're working on that and we're also working on a parent guide yeah. uh, with other organizations okay S society for <clears throat> uh, evidence-based gender medicine and gender health query, and we're putting that together um, as well. So those are yeah. the, our two most prominent um, initiatives that have come. Okay, we've been able to pull off. For 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 someone who doesn't really maybe have any idea of what's going on, what this conversation is is about, when you say you, you use a phrase like this population. Can you unpack specifically the kinds of people well, that I think you're you know the, there is a population of young people that are going through a process of um, reflecting on, questioning, and pursuing um, their gender identity, what has come to be known as their gender identity. And these young people 
um, have, may have a, an actual different identity or a different gender expression, or they may be gender non-conforming in some way. Um, and they're also exploring, because they're young people, their sexualities, so it's a part of the package, particularly for those that are um, post-pubescent or going through adolescence. Uh, the two intersect quite deeply. And so we are want to have ethical care for this population. And do you find, do you, are you seeing, and I know the answer to this, I'm just going to help my audience here. I mean, do, do you find that um, the care for this population, gender nonconforming, people wrestling with their gender identity, do you find that there are some ethical problems in how they're being cared for in, say, mainstream medicine right now? Like well, if, Yes, I, I think I think there are definitely ethical problems because people are not completely aware of the harms. Hmm. Uh, ethics are primarily medical ethics are primarily triggered by harms, hmm. and and the, and and the, and is guided by the motive to avoid unnecessary harms. And so it has sort of a, a process of analyzing whether these harms are indeed being ethically managed and, and whether they are being offered and managed in an ethical manner. And obviously when you're dealing with children, uh, the question of whether they are competent or have the capacity to even appreciate the harms. Hmm. And, when the, and when the harms are long term, meaning they may not be impacting you immediately, mm -hmm. Then you have a question of whether they have the competency and capacity to appreciate long-term harms mm -hmm. or the potential for long-term harms. And it's sort of an unraveling of an onion because then you begin to ask, well, what do we know about the harms? Mm -hmm. And there are definitely harms that are involved. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole other aspect of this is that these are irreversible um, interventions that impact children and, and youth and obviously adults as well, yeah. but in a different way to children and, and youth because the, the interventions are start earlier um, with puberty blockers, with cross-sex hormones, with um, top surgeries, and obviously um, sexual reassignment surgeries that are bottom surgeries. All of these are irreversible. And there are some aspects of the hormones that are irreversible. And there are some aspects of taking puberty blockers mm -hmm. that um, are, are not neutral. Mm -hmm. And we don't have a lot of research on the impact of these interventions. And so because they are very dramatic. They do affect things like sexual function, fertility, um, bone density, cardiovascular functioning, brain development. These are pretty mm -hmm. severe interventions that we are just beginning to um, take with a very large, increasingly large population. And that's the other aspect of it is that the demographics have changed dramatically over the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. Not only the gross numbers of children that are, are going to gender clinics and experiencing 
uh, medical interventions has grown, but the actual demographics of girls versus boys and ages has changed dramatically over the last 10 years. I want to get into why that's changed, um, because that's, yeah, that's something that's becoming very well known is that gender dysphoria in children is typically something that affected, you know, a small percentage of the population, but primarily males, where now it's a much higher population, but the inversion of the sex ratio has dramatically uh switch yes raises question i want want to get back to that but just to go back so you're saying um can can you maybe explain when you know you were talking about puberty blockers and and some of the negative side effects that those can have now if if somebody googles around a little bit they'll hear lots of people with credentials to say these are perfectly safe they're irreversible you know they just allow somebody who's wrestling with their gender identity to you know buys them some time to you know not go through puberty without really understanding who they are. Um, so there's a kind of a pop, right? There's a popular narrative that says these are perfectly safe. And yet I- I've been reading studies that show that we don't know that. Like there's no long-term studies done on these. And the ones we do know are, are, are showing some negative side effects. Why? Well, I think, yeah. Well, excuse me. I think that, I think that the thing that it, to, grasp, which is really harder to, hard to take in, is how little this has been studied, that there are no real long-term studies. There are short-term studies of, five, like, say, five years as to whether to the degree to which bone density has been impacted, um, but not on this population and not on a population that has been followed with um, cross-sex hormones. So and not in a long term. So we really are in a, a, a very weak research and it's just beginning. And I don't think people fully appreciate how little is known um, as to what is the impact. But we do know anecdotally um, what some of this is. And we do know where puberty blockers have been used on children um, who are, have precocious puberty, meaning that, that to, to prevent them from growing too much. But the use of puberty blockers for that population is very different. It's for a shorter period of time, and there are no cross-sex hormones that are followed. So they then resume puberty. Uh, and we that, that's the long and the short of it, is how little is actually known. Um, and how much we are increasingly knowing that, that there are impacts, and we cannot represent that it's fully reversible. And I, you know, the mm-hmm. Tavistock uh, Gids clinic in the UK had to remove their representations on their website to that effect mm-hmm. because this is a changing science. Yeah. We have a lengthy article coming out. Um, my organization, we've been following the Tavistock uh, controversy, you know, like really closely. And we have a really long article. In fact, by the time this releases, it, it's, it'll probably already be out as a very long blog on our website. I'll, I'll send you the link. And it's that the Tavistock, so it's the main gender clinic in the UK. And it has become almost like a microcosm of some of the issues surrounding everything we're talking about, the ethics of how to treat um, kids with either gender dysphoria or gender nonconforming identities or behaviors. Um, what, what would you say to the argument that says, look, okay, yes, there's a health risk. Everything has a health risk. Eating bacon, driving a car has a health risk. But these kids, the, the suicide rate is off the chart. 
And so wouldn't you rather have somebody with some possible physical health side effects versus uh, somebody who ends up taking their life? Uh, well, first of all, have you seen somebody raise that argument? Is that a popular argument? And how would you respond it, to that? It is, it is a, a very popular argument. And I don't think we, you know, I, I, I think the question is twofold. One is you're treating a population as if it's all suicidal. And we don't treat populations as if they're suicidal. We treat individuals as if they may or may not be suicidal. And they still are entitled to a full assessment and a full appreciation of what may be going on that is creating their dysphoria. And that should not, you know, whether they're suicidal or not suicidal, or you know what the actual suicidal statistics are, you don't withhold care based upon that. And that's the, the, the primary issue, mm-hmm. is that um, is simple affirming actually the best care? Is there another way to represent to them, to this population, that they need to explore and they need to be open to cognitive therapies, Mm -hmm. and there are ways of being supportive of them without setting them on a track to medically transition when we don't really know all the facts of their individual cases. That's the first thing. The second thing is, is is that the statistics around this are now coming up to question because most of these statistics were based upon adults. And I don't want to get into a, a full discussion of the statistics around suicides. This children are, you know, this is a vulnerable population. Their needs should be addressed. But whether or not you withhold cognitive and other therapies should not be preempted because in general, adults who, who have this condition have had higher rates of suicidal ideation. We don't think that's a great medical model. And it, you raise a good point. It's a controversial one, from what I, when, from what I can tell, that if a child comes in with gender dysphoria, um, gender nonconforming identities, expressions, interests, whatever you know, um, you're, you're saying that they should be like other. Um, possible causes for that dysphoria should be explored but that's a unpopular thing to do i mean ken zucker who that he was the world-renowned expert on gender dysphoria in kids and he you know he's developed this biosocial model of caring for kids like let's explore what's going on has there been past trauma is there um are they on the autism spectrum um do they have internalized misogyny or uh, homophobia or the there's He's a big fan of exploring lots of psychosocial things that the child might be wrestling with and oftentimes are, but he got fired for that. <laughs> um, well, he, he was fired and then he sued and won his case. So, it, it, you know. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that, okay. I, did, I actually didn't know the outcome. So he sued. I didn't hear that part. Okay. Um, yeah. What, what is, what do the critics of that model say? Like, cause it seemed like to me, if somebody is wrestling, it just seems it seems obvious on the outside, like, of course, we should explore other other things going on. Why has that become very politically incorrect to even do? Well, um, this is, a, you know, this is this is a question of uh, whether what, what you think is going on and what kind of care 
some ch a child is, is entitled to. I, I, I think that um, the, the affirmative model is set out to reduce stigma and to encourage um, kids to self-accept and to encourage others to accept that their gender dysphoria is the result of uh, a variant of gender identity and that we have that. That's the thesis. Uh, I mean, the gender identities are variant and that we you know, belong on a spectrum. This is a theory about this um, as to why children have gender dysphoria, what the nature of the gender dysphoria is. I, you know, I want to go, I just want to go back to the, the representation is that there are reasons that there may there is no reason that someone has gender dysphoria. It, gender dysphoria is a distress, a distress with dealing with stereotypes because that's what the DSM is. The DSM has you know you have to have six of eight possible you know. Mm -hmm. items in order to qualify to have gender dysphoria. Basically, five of those have to do with stereotypes. And, and the sixth is whether or not, you know, your relationship to these stereotypes or who you play with or who you like, how you like to dress causes you distress about who you might be. Well, that's a pretty broad way of defining who has gender dysphoria or what gender dysphoria is. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, the, the question in someone's mind is to what degree um, are children self-diagnosing their, their problems with their bodies or how they feel about themselves or how they feel about stereotypes really are, um, are, are, are set to meet this criteria. And therefore, we're too quick to give them this diagnosis, and it's too facile a diagnosis, mm -hmm. and we should be analyzing what else could be contributing to this and afford them the full spectrum of, of care mm -hmm. um, because the harms are irreversible. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the scrutiny should be heightened. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I think that what what we feel is happening is that they're they're getting not, they're not getting the full breadth of what psychoanalysts or psycho um, psychology has developmental psychology has to offer, mm -hmm. and it should be more nuanced and it should be a a more exploratory walk mm -hmm. than a fixed walk of well you you feel this way because. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, it's a given that you will transition. That's why, why, sort of what it's come down to. Why isn't it explained? It is kind of, again, as somebody who's not in the medical field, looking on and seeing um, how somebody like a Ken Zucker or others who have this more exploratory model can be really ostracized. Um, are medical professionals oblivious to some of these harms? I mean, that just shot. It's eerie to think, wait a minute all these endocrinologists who specialize in this aren't aware of these studies that show, you know, or is there political pressure? I mean, can you help us understand why 
is this not I, I, discussed I, more often? Yeah, I, I think I think that there obviously is political pressure, um, but but you know but but I, and and there's a question as to how how we've come to this point of of feeling this way about this particular population, and it obviously has a lot to do with how um, homosexuals and homosexuality was treated early on. It's been folded in to that model. And, it's a, and, and, and therefore, it's easy for people to understand the homosexual um, treatments and, the, the, and conversion therapies and that model and how stigma played a role in depression. And that has all been transposed onto the gender identity issues. That, and I, I don't think that they're the same at all. And, um, and as a result, I don't think the same model should be um, transposed from one to the other. So, so, yeah, most people are familiar with, you know, sexual orientation change efforts. Uh, in Christian circles, we call it, you know, ex-gay ministries that try to change somebody from being gay to straight, meaning stop being attracted to the same sex and start being attracted to the opposite sex. And, and there's an ongoing debate, right? Both, I mean, within the church and outside the church, there's no real debate outside the church, I don't think, but we, even within the church, there's some debates. But I think the, the majority of people I talk to say, yeah, I don't think we be doing that anymore. That doesn't seem very helpful or even ethical. Um, but what you're saying is um, there's widespread agreement that we shouldn't try to change somebody's sexual orientation, especially a youth. Um, but people have taken that truism and mapped it upon gender identity saying we also shouldn't try to change somebody's gender identity if they identify as say the opposite sex or non-binary then that is what they are and if anything needs to change it would be the body needs to change and yet that's not seen as conversion therapy conversion therapy is being viewed as changing somebody's internal sense of who they are um is that um yes so it's it 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 does it doesn't map uh, quite accurately, and that's why we think it's inappropriate, because um, you know, w- w- under a homosexuality, the idea was to ex- that your body, uh, that you're male, that you're female, and and to have an integration without your mind. It was, and and I think the gender identity is basically saying that you, the problem is is your mind. Excuse me, you, the problem is your body, and you need to change your body, um, and that's why you feel the way you feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, to me, it's just completely different. I think also, and we can talk a little bit about this, but you know, there were actual studies that the the, the homosexuality. Um, was, you know, conversion therapies for homosexuality were not successful. That is not true with gender identity. Mm. Um, you know, as you mentioned Ken Zucker, but there are also, you know, the Dutch model that mm. people talk about now. All, you know, had great success, if you want to call it success, meaning avoiding unnecessary medical intervention. That's a success. Determining what is necessary and what is not necessary is a different issue. Mm -hmm. But they had, you know, 65, 80, 90 percent desistance, meaning the child did not need to have a medical intervention. 
that is not the same as and, and, and they experience to some degree therapies being left alone, being given room to explore on their own, uh, holding spaces for them, also exploring whether or not there was trauma, a whole list of things. Yeah. But that to me is a whole different model than the problems that homosexuals had when somebody tried to intervene with cognitive therapies. They were harmful. They were not successful. Hmm. So these things are apples and oranges because they're developmentally different. They're the, the risks of unnecessary harms are different. I mean, what I like to say is the normalization of homosexuality was to depathologize it so that you didn't have any medical interventions. You didn't have chemical castration. You didn't have to go on meds to, you know, to deal with depression over the fact that you were attracted. You didn't have lobotomies. You didn't have all of these things that were used to medicalize your condition. Well, the reverse is true here. Hmm. We are actually medicalizing a condition and saying, well, we're going to introduce interventions in order for you to cope with this condition. That is completely inverse right. to what we wanted and to happen with regard to homosexuality. And so you cannot use the same mm-hmm. models at all. And yet it's, it is, I mean, you're, you're a lawyer, so you tell me, it, as I've <laughs> danced around, it, it does seem that I keep seeing, you know, sexual orientation and gender identity conversion efforts they're just conflated together is is that written into law in certain states like and how or is it not quite there yet well this is yeah okay yeah i have thoughts about the the conversion therapy bans are overbroad and vague i i'm really looking forward and not with regard to homosexuality per se but certainly with regard to gender identity, because what does it mean? They, they um, prohibit trying to change someone's identity. And, um, and that's the key element, is an intention to change. And the question is, well, where does conversion therapy leave off and everything else that we feel is necessary to provide for the whole person, all of the developmental knowledge that we have around identity development and trauma and whatever, and depression or whatever else, one feel isolation and even minority stress, mm-hmm. all of these things. Um, Where does it, you know, how do you calibrate when you are exploring, when you are asking questions, Mm -hmm. and when you are, quote-unquote, gatekeeping? When does it become evidence of an intention? Hmm. The bans do not make that clear what, what the differentiation is. And like most things that are broadly written or vaguely written, um, it's the proof is in the pudding. The proof is when somebody's um, licensure is pulled, mm-hmm. but nobody wants their license don't to be the test case. So what you have is very vague prohibitions that include gender identity that have not been tested in the courts to see if 
they are, are, are you know valid bans because if a ban is too valid, I mean too vague, you can't enforce it. And therefore, someone says, "Well, I was not put on notice that this was illegal because it was so vague. I had no way of interpreting it." And so the court can say, "It does. I, I can't apply this legislation." Um, but the point is, is that the result of that, of these vague, broad bans. Uh, in certain states is that people don't want to deal with this population hmm. because they don't know where the lines are. Wow. They only know that where you, you affirm and affirm quickly, you cannot be accused of trying to change their wow. identity. And therefore you are covered by as an except, you know, you're, is this not applying to you? And that's what the actual impact has been. Yeah. The impact has not been to to keep people from doing conversion therapy on identity. The the impact has been that only people who do affirmative, clear-cut affirmative therapy practicing on this population because they know that they are safe. Wow. What oh man, so um uh, that that makes sense. I mean, I put myself in the shoes of a therapist, a medical professional, whatever. And if I know, if I just affirm the affirm the identity, affirm dysphoria, give them what they want, whatever, then I'm clear. There's no risk. And yet, you you could be irreversibly, significantly harming this adolescent. Um, yeah, that's eerie a little bit. I mean, how widespread is it? I mean, it's enough of an issue that you started this whole organization. I don't think. <laughs> you make a lot of money from I'm the, the organization. I, uh, no, what's your motivation? Is this is this a serious enough issue that um, people should really wake up to? Well, I think it's a serious enough issue that children in this population are not being provided all of the care that is available. And that I mean, all that we know developmentally, all that we could assist them in. Uh, they're not given appropriate assessments as to what may be contributing to their feelings. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that that is true. Mm -hmm. I think from what we hear from parents, from clinicians, and now from detransitioners uh, and people who transitioned yeah. and stopped for whatever reason, that the level of care that is being offered is, is not adequate to prevent unnecessary harm. The, the, you mentioned, we've mentioned detransitioners a few times, and, and we have some friends in common that have, have transitioned in their teenage years and now are detransitioning. Um, now, some people say, yeah, of course, one or 2% might regret their transition. I mean, people regret stuff all the time, but the overwhelming um, population that does transitions are the, the do transition are very happy with their transition. It has helped their dysphoria. Their other mental health um, things are wrestling with is, is what some people will say. And yet it anecdotally, at least it's, I, it just seems like there's a growing number of detransitioners who keep saying the same thing. They're in their early twenties. They're typically female. And they're saying exactly what you're saying that they don't feel like looking back they were cared for holistically or appropriately. Um, they were just 
people went along with whatever they kind of said and demanded and now they're paying the the price for that is that am i wrong to say that this again well, anecdotally no, no, is a... no we don't know the numbers and and i don't think that we're going to know the numbers for a while okay um and 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 not and so i don't want to represent you know what the numbers are i think that you know our position is that they are part and parcel of this same population uh, and 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 therefore their needs are legitimate and valid and that we should be using what they are telling us mm-hmm. um, to not only provide them with better care but to avoid um, some of the pitfalls that we you know may be coming up around this we are still in a very early stage of this you know of this exponential growth and we don't really know what is creating it or what the impact of it is and whether this population will um, have have a different um, trajectory as far as whether they more of them desist or, or detransition. Mm-hmm. I think that common sense to some degree tells you that the less preparation you have, because transitioning is not a small item, mm-hmm. um, not for you physically, not for you mentally, and not for you socially. And this was why there was a great deal of gatekeeping that went in, because it was not a small deal. But we have minimized all of that. We have made it into something we absolutely self-diagnose. And we absolutely provide hormones with one or two meetings. And we can get them pretty much on demand. And there's no way that, that, that in our culture that's not going to affect the level of regret. Have there been um, lawsuits from, again, detransitioners in the early 20s that say, my, I feel like I was, it was medical malpractice from my caretakers – are there any losses? Is that happening, or do you foresee that there in the future? Carabelle in, in in the UK is the most prominent lawsuit, and she's suing Tavistock. And I think it's you know uh, no coincidence that once she sued them, they uh, took a lot of stuff down from their website um, as as being perhaps misrepresenting the risks of of this of, of the intervention okay. and being misleading about it. What's her name again? Uh, it's Kara Bell, is that or? Yeah, Kara Bell. Yeah. And um, and and so she has she has a suit that's proceeding through the courts. Um, it's going to take a while for for I mean this is this is ostensibly how the West, in particular the U.S., practices medicine. It goes whole hog. <clears throat> Oxycontin, I could name you, you know, until and the thing about Oxycontin was that the the negative effects were so quick. So it was like everybody has it and then every, you know, mm-hmm. in, a, in a bad way. So it's quick, very quick to show cause and effect. Hmm. You did this, you did that. So this we're not going to have that. But at the same time, that's how we um, manage medicine is through adverse events and people suing. These drugs that are being provided, puberty blockers, are off-label. The cross-sex hormones is an off-label. These are. This means that there are no long-term studies as to the impact. And you're, 
and, and therefore the FDA has not approved them for this use. And, but what we allow for that, because we want the lo biggest flexibility between a doctor and a patient, for them to come to what is the best protocols and usage for them. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. unless it has been banned, or unless there, there have been enough adverse effects that the FDA has put a warning on it, um, then, then we proceed until people begin mm -hmm. to complain and sue. Okay. That's how it works. And until, that, <laughs> until that happens, we go whole hog and pretend that it's safe. Every time. Not some of the time. Not the time. Every time. So you're saying it's just a matter of time until there is some big lawsuit or lawsuits that shake people up to kind of reconsider their method I of intervention? I think it's a matter of time. I think that there are, there have been, I think, I don't, in Canada, informed consent lawsuits in which the, 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 the informed consent forms and the time representing what the risks were were not adequate. Mm -hmm. um, I think that in this country we're going to have problems around the fact that because we designate 18-year-olds uh, to be fully competent, and so you just have to give them a litany of risks and not really assess how, are they competent, are they are they, do they have capacity? What is influencing them? Mm -hmm. This is, it's being treated sort of like plastic surgery. Yeah. You know, yeah. this is something you wanted for you. Right. You know, you got some, you, you either, you know, you did a GoFundMe and you got the money or you're on Medicaid or your, or, or your parents insurance or your university's insurance, yeah. cover it. And if it's a covered service, then it's between you and yourself as to whether or not this is appropriate and you take the full risk. Mm -hmm. Obviously, for minors, and, and there's a whole quasi area in here of what we call the mature minor, um, but is that children, by definition, do not have the capacity or competency to fully evaluate the risks. Right. And so, therefore, it is actually adults that are making this decision for them. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's a whole different area of, of yeah. analysis. And that's why, to me, the scrutiny has to be much higher because you are deciding for somebody else, a child. And the I know, at least in Oregon, the informed consent, the age is something like, I think it's 15, right? A 15-year-old. Can go in without any parent knowledge and get a double mastectomy and cross-sex hormones without their parents knowing. Like, is that was that true? Um, yes, I think it's the youngest. I think it's the youngest. And now, you know, there's a lot of happening in that area as to uh, if the parents don't want to consent and they're younger, how how you manipulate or or traverse right. uh, uh, separating the child out so that the child can can get the services right. regardless of what the parents consent to or not consent to yeah i had a, a parent of a 14 year old in california that told me they came to me in tears i mean i, I don't know what to say they said my fort is demanding cross-sex hormones i want to say no but all, all if i say no she'll go report me saying it's a harmful toxic environment my mother's not affirming my identity she's not getting me the medical treatment i need um and so she'll lose custody. She's like, what do I do? And I, I don't, I'm like, I don't, <laughs> as a parent of four kids, you're a parent with two kids. I mean, I, I don't, 
that's so eerie that people are in that situation. Um, right. It's a very, very, very difficult situation. But I think from our point of view, a lot of this has developed in this way because the public is not fully aware of the nature of the harms hmm. and okay. uh, not fully aware of how little deep assessment is going on with regard to whether an individual child uh, should be going through a medical transition. Okay. Yeah. And that's, that's generally what we find is that this has not been fully platformed and it's not part of, the uh, of a public debate and there's a great deal of effort to smother it in its crib, for better, this kind of discussion, as being transphobic. That you, you know, in, in, and that's what happened with regard to certain legislation that came up last year, and I think probably will come up once we get around this political season. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, again, with regard to legislation, with regard to particularly puberty blockers, because yeah. they begin so um, and there's and, there, and pretty much once you start the puberty blockers, there's a, you know, 99 to 100 percent will go on to cross sex mm -hmm. hormones. So it's not a pause. It is part of a pathway and um, and see, understanding it for what it is and how it is actually used and, the, and what and the role that it plays in the life, in the physical life of a child, mm -hmm. um, and when it can be introduced, can be introduced as young as eight, uh, depending on when the, the child is in um, stage, stage 10 or stage two. But I think, you know, so some of that legislation, um, you know, regardless of what I think of whether or not you should make something criminal or just a civil penalty or what the penalty should be for proceeding, um, was really, I felt, um, promoted a discussion and a higher awareness of what the level of care is that's actually being provided and what the actual medical risks are. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that we as a society can really evaluate what the best practice is unless we have this information available to us. And so that is that kind of your the driving goal in your organization to just spread awareness of specifically these medical issues that aren't being addressed. I mean, well, I, I think I think that we have a twofold: is that we cannot arrive at what is ethical care unless we are discussing what the harms are, mm -hmm. and have a full appreciation for the nature and the extent of the harms. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is to begin uh, to explore how to provide uh, a, a, a better model of care for this mm. population that isn't, that isn't tantamount to the care that they're being provided, but opens up the care again mm -hmm. uh, in light of these harms, in light of the population that is being um, impacted yeah. in light of the influences that may be causing some of this yeah. to happen to girls in particular, but to the extent that it's happening. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping that even those that support affirmative care will begin to reassess the level of care that they're beginning by and sort of 
back up a bit yeah. and say, well, we need this population is different. This is being impacted by outside influences that we did not anticipate and we need to um, adjust for and not be too quick in what we yeah. um, assess as being appropriate interventions. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious. So, so uh, this has your talk. J.K. Rowling um, has been very public voicing a lot of the same concerns you, you voiced um, with specifically uh, adolescents, underage kids um, receiving medical intervention too quickly. Um, and she's been labeled a homophobe, transphobe, anti-LGBT. Um, do you get those kind of accusations and how do you respond to that? <laughs> I think everyone does. I mean, you know, it, there, there is a there is a particular dogma and and line um, that that makes people feel safe within you know the trans community, and anyone that doesn't hold that line um, is questionable, and and we are questioned. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think that uh, we have to focus on the actual care that is being provided. And, and really uh, maintain that that is really what we're focused on. And asking the trans community itself and asking clinicians to really um, pause in, in their affirmation, not that you can't affirm someone, but you need to fully assess mm -hmm. and explore with that individual all the things that might be going into causing mm -hmm. that um, distress. It's 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 it is sad because I mean, it, it, at least the motivation from people across the kind of spectrum of how to care for kids, the the motivation is what is the best care for these individual children. I don't I don't hear anybody, at least in the broader conversation, um, not care about the kids. And so so the you know the say the trans activists, you know, they're like man, if these kids can transition before they go through adolescence, they can pass a lot more easily and their, their distress will be reduced. And so, I mean, I, I agree or disagree, their motivation is I want what's best for these kids, I think, at least verbally. And, uh, and same thing, people that are a little more critical of, of a gender-affirming care are saying, no, I think this is actually doing more harm than good. Why can't we come together and have a discussion when the motivation, at least, is publicly the same? We want to look at all the evidence, look at all the facts, get our arms around this so that we can best care for these these kids. Uh, do, do you foresee that conversation happening or is it just going to keep being a big outrage <laughs> session? I, well, given I, see it, I do see it happening and I, I don't see it happening uh, immediately, but I do feel it will happen over time. Because, mm. again, that's how we practice medicine. Mm. We take in new information. We see that things are not working out. We see that people are getting addicted mm. to Oxycontin, whatever it is. We see the results, and then we reassess. Mm. And, um, and, that's, and that ha that's how it works. So I think that some of this will resolve itself eventually, because the information, there will be long-term studies, there will be suits of people who feel that they didn't get the full breadth of care they could have gotten, or they weren't fully informed mm -hmm. uh, of what the risks were, and there will have to be in a reassessment. There was reassessment of intersex surgeries. Right. It took 25 years. Wow, that's true, yeah. 
and 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 the, as a result of the patients themselves uh, coming to the floor and talking about what their experience mm -hmm. was or wasn't, and we, we don't we're not going to come to a perfect resolution, but I do feel that you know medicine will change, and I I do feel that this population will begin to become vocal for itself. And, it, and right now, I think that a lot of people, older people, are speaking for this population because the numbers of kids that are going through this process has never been seen before. Right. And, you know, and as a result of that, there's, we're going to learn a great deal. I just want us to be open to what we're going to find. Hey, would you – so – in my again, in my anecdotal experience, it seems like a lot of older self-identified transsexuals who prefer the term transsexual, not transgender, they're very concerned about kids um, transitioning too quickly, and they obviously would be very much in support of some people transitioning. It you know um, they're very much for that. They have no moral problems with that, but they're more and more. I'm seeing people. Again, older, let's say old, older than 50, you know, transsexuals who are the most concerned. Are you are you seeing that as well? Or is my anecdotal? Well, I, certainly, I certainly know of them. I, you know, I certainly know that there is an actual population. You know, the population of people who will talk about their experience, who mm -hmm. will come out and actually want to get in front of, you know, an audience and, and vocalize is a different is a different group than those that just want to go on with their lives. Right. You know. And, and have been and are quite happy with the choices that they have made. But I would say that in general, the older population that did um, they call, refer to themselves or think of themselves more in the terminology of a transsexual um, appreciate the assessment that they went through mm -hmm. uh, and are concerned because there is a way of making it seem easy yeah and not yeah yeah i'm gonna say something really politically incorrect uh but most people on my audience i don't think will catch it and i would love your thoughts on it and if you want to plead the fifth i totally get it but it seems like some of the most aggressive and, and let me just make a distinction between trans activists a small minority of trans people versus the average person who would be on the under the trans umbrella most trans people i every trans person i personally know it's not an activist. They don't even re resonate with that. They're just, as you said, they're just trying to live. They're trying to figure themselves out. Um, so I don't like it when people conflate the two. They, they hear a trans activist and then they think, oh, that represents trans people. And that's just not true. However, in my experience, some of the loudest trans activists would fit the, the, the profile of being autogenophiliac, um, which is, you know, it's one a certain type of experience, but they would... I don't know. It seems like a very specific kind of trans person that is the most vocal, especially in this area. Does that, I don't know. Is that, again, my anecdotal well, observation? Well, I would say you're not, you, you know, that is not exclusive to trans activists. I think all activists are pretty vocal. It's part of being an activist is that you <laughs> want to be out in front of something and something and you, and you have a, a passion about it. Uh, and, and you want to put forth a position and a, and a perspective. That's what makes an activist an activist. Um, I think, you know, I don't like to talk too much about the politics of it. 
But I think that if it, you can say that there there are activists who are creating a situation where there is a downward pressure to have uh, medical transition of children younger and and to uh, capacity to consent younger and um, and and that is the result of an uh, an ideology around what is causing the distress, right. meaning that you're born this way, and that there's no sense in, in any other way of that. And the, and the sooner you get on with it, the child yeah. will be. Yeah. And I, that's a perspective, and it's, it, it is a perspective of uh, coming from an ideology around what is causing the gender distress. And I, I can appreciate that the motivation, again, is I think they want the best for other people. I would disagree with that just from an anthropological or philosophical point of view. Um, but uh, the motivation I, I, I can appreciate and I could, I could affirm that in somebody that they, it seems like they truly do want what's best for the kids. How, how do people respond though? And I, I won't keep you much longer, Jane, and I'm sure you have other things to do than just well, that. That's good in theory. That's good in theory. Mm-hmm. But we have to return to what the science can actually right. provide. Well, that's where I was going. I mean, according to all the studies, 61 to 88 percent. And I, I've, I have a, an 80 page document combing through these studies. So it's not right. I'm not just reciting some tweet. Um, it, it seems legit to me that 61 to 88 percent, depending on the study of kids pre adolescence with gender dysphoria, it goes away after adolescence. How, how do the. The people who think that, no, if a five-year-old says they're trans, that's what they'll always be like. How do they respond to those studies? Because there isn't, I mean, it just seems like well, pretty I think, clear. I think, you know, what I would say is that the short-term benefit, because this is the language that is used, is that if you affirm, regardless of the age, the child will thrive. And the child thrives under being affirmed. And so it's, a, it's, it, it's, it's sort of saying, well, uh, under, I mean, the, the way the, the affirm model is set out is it's, it's stages. You socially transition and we can, you know, mm-hmm. which is to uh, allow the child to express the, gen, the opposite gender and confirm through name changes and also to confirm through pronoun use. That's sort of socially transition. And then as the child grows up, you, you, you block their puberties and you use a uh, block puberty and then and then you, you give cross sex hormones and then you do surgeries. That's sort of the mm-hmm. overview. Each one is more invasive. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is that um, social transition and puberty blockers until recently were viewed as a neutral intervention. Mm. And therefore, the child could still desist. What's to prevent the child from desisting? You know, you could just, you know, you you haven't harmed the child. Mm -hmm. The child can say, I've changed my mind. What's the deal? You know, it's perfectly free to do that. I think our position is is that socially transitioning is not neutral. Mm. Uh, It is actually a way of conditioning the child uh, in, to think of themselves 
in a social setting as a particular gender. Mm -hmm. It begins to re self-confirming. Mm -hmm. And it then also places a burden on the child that if the child begins to go through puberty and begins to ask questions about whether or not becomes more mindful of, of, of their experiences, the child has to backtrack. Mm -hmm. And that is a different burden being placed on the child than allowing the child to have the space to actually freely explore. And so we don't feel that social transitioning is actually neutral. Well, I, I don't know how anybody could say it is neutral. Anybody with any kind of awareness of basic science or sociology, even things like brain plasticity, we know that habits and the whole nature nurture thing has been it's so complex. I mean, even habits in life rewiring in different ways, like to think that what we do socially doesn't have some kind of effect on our self perception, our psychology. Our, that just seems so naive to me. I don't know. It's fascinating that somebody would say it's a neutral thing. You could say it's a good thing or whatever, but to say it's like that won't have any real lasting effect. That seems insane to me. <laughs> well, also, and I think, you know, but I think because in the sort of vacuum of no long-term studies yeah. where we can't say, well, socially transitioning will lead to pu puberty blockers, which will lead to, and then we have these harms. So you have an effect sort of saddled a, a young child with a certain set of harms. Mm -hmm. And that's what I mean. Until we have a full grasp of what the harms are, we really cannot fully assess what is ethical. Mm-hmm. And my position is, and our position is at Rhyme, is that we have enough information that this should be treated at least as experimental and not be treated as neutral or irreversible or not harmful and, and, and that you are taking substantial risks mm -hmm. by entering this. It's not a glitter walk. It's not fun. Mm -hmm. This child will experience a great deal of physical, psychological and social mm -hmm. repercussions from going through this process. And adults are determining that. Mm -hmm. The child is not. And we haven't even gone here. We could leave this maybe for another time. But you said it's not a glitter walk. And yet there are some YouTubers with literally millions of followers who <laughs> portray it as just that. A, right. a glitter walk. And I think that, um, and I, we're now starting to understand, I think the, the impact of social media, especially YouTube or Tumblr and others that, um, yeah, that's, uh, everything you're saying is, is not the dominant voice they're hearing. Um, yes. yeah, which is eerie again. Um, Jane, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I've taken you uh, over an okay. hour, an hour and eight seconds. So, oh, uh, just, it flew by. Flew yeah, by. I flew. I could talk to you for hours and again. Oh, so I, I, you know, for those of you who are interested, I mean, you've probably Googled it already in listening to Jane, but, um, rethink I M E rethink ime.org that's rethink identity medicine ethics loads of great great research uh, resources here um what i love about your ministry or your ministry or your organization jane is that um that the the research is so thorough and thoughtful like you're not citing you know the you know some 
tabloid or whatever. You you're, you have like citations of actual peer-reviewed researched. You have on your board. I mean, some high-powered professionals here um, on your board of advisors and stuff. I mean, it's it's the the, the quality. As an academic myself, I just appreciate. <laughs> When something is just done with academic um, thoroughness, and I, so your, yeah, your organization's fantastic. I hope a lot of people check it out after this. Well, thanks so much. Yeah. All right. Take care. Take care. Thank you. My pleasure.